Hey there everybody and welcome back to yet another episode here on the Desi Vesi podcast. I'm your host Akash Pat and each week I speak to leading investors and founders investing and building companies in the diverse landscape of India. Today is yet another special episode here for us on the show. My guest today is Abhishek Nag. He is a partner at Lightspeed India and is primarily focused on investing in consumer internet companies media and entertainment the creator economy and gaming he brings extensive experience driving strategic partnerships business development and corporate development for internet companies in the domains of growth content and payments among other areas previously he held operating positions at hyper growth companies including meta uber hike and more recently netflix While Lightspeed may be his first full-time investor role, he's been actively investing in startups as an angel since 2016 and has backed over 45 companies till date with several first-round investments turned unicorns. So today on the podcast, we talk about his journey into venture capital, learnings from angel investing that he will be taking into his role as a VC, and what businesses can learn about expanding into new markets. from his own personal experience helping global brands do so in india this is a great episode full of amazing examples from his operating journey i am extremely excited to share this one with each and every one of you so without further ado let's head in and listen to abhishek nag Hi Abhishek and welcome to the DCVC podcast. I'm extremely excited about hosting you on the show today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a number of weeks now and uh finally glad that we are able to make this happen. I hope to take you down memory lane and discuss some of your experiences as an operator and today as an investor and over the course of all of this unravel some great insights about your experiences in the country. But before we get into all of that Welcome to the show and how are you doing? Thank you, thank you Akash. Uh, it's a privilege to be here and uh it's going great. I mean, India is buzzing as ever. Founders are more and more ambitious every day. So, yeah, I'm having the ride of my life. That's fantastic to hear. I know we've got limited time on today's conversation, so without wasting any time here, let's get into the meat of the conversation. We're currently looking at a very interesting period of time in history. There's war going on on one side of the world. You've got the economic slowdown here in the United States and other geopolitical tensions that are taking place across the globe. Now fortunately, a lot of that has not really trickled down to India or really hit our economy as previously some of the global macroeconomic trends would have hit. Now I'm curious to understand how is Lightspeed looking at all of this? and more importantly what is the state of the venture capital ecosystem in the country we're obviously seen funding freezes and you know people calling it the funding winter and this could perhaps go on for the next couple of quarters i'm curious to hear what is your perspective on all of this and perhaps an extension to that is what are you hearing from your colleagues in the industry and how is that going to affect the indian tech and vc ecosystem in the near future yeah You know, uh, whenever you think about the macroeconomy, whether it's the global macroeconomy or the Indian macroeconomy, it helps to 
zoom out and then uh, you know take sort of a long term view and then zoom in and see where we are uh, as a point in time right because i think the long term view uh, which we get when we zoom out determines what we are building for collectively right mm-hmm. what what are the things that give us hope optimism uh you know the fire the fuel that uh, uh, keep an economy economy thriving and when you zoom in you get a sense of what the near term challenges and opportunities are uh, and so i tend to look at what's going on in those two contexts if i zoom out uh it's very clear to me that in 30 years time india is going to be one of the uh largest developed economies of the world we will not any longer be classified as a developing economy or an emerging market and yeah. uh, you already see a lot of signs of uh, areas where we have leapfrogged the rest of the world and we we can talk about some of those areas and that really drives sort of my overall sense of hope and optimism uh, uh which keeps me motivated to do my job uh, and work hard every day uh if you look at sort of where we are as a point in time today uh 2020 and 2021 were unique because uh most governments around the world wanting to avoid a demand crunch because of covid decided to print a lot of money and so you had capital available at very low interest rates and whenever you are in, in an environment where capital is easily available that capital tends to naturally go to the riskiest asset classes right and we saw that we saw a lot of capital go into crypto we saw a lot of capital go into tech public stocks and we saw a lot of capital go into sort of tech private equity as well which is our world yeah uh that obviously fueled a lot of funding activity uh a lot of valuation gains on paper that uh you know made a lot of founders feel bolder about uh, fundraising more ambitious about their plans but that environment's changing now and uh, you know the interest rates are going up capital is moving to safer havens gradually uh interestingly enough this creates uh, a split sort of world view on early stage investing versus late stage investing on early stage investing in india uh, the early stage funds over the last 18 months or so raised 4.5 billion dollars in uh, capital and that yeah. capital is waiting to get deployed over the next 3 years mm-hmm. uh so that's you know if you average it out a billion and a half dollars of capital waiting to get deployed in seed and series a startups over the next 3 years or so however when it comes to late stage capital that's where things get a little interesting most of the late stage deals in the second half of 2020 and 2021 were done by these large global crossover funds funds like tiger softbank temasek rtt and so on and these funds have exposures across multiple asset classes so they are invested in the public markets and they are invested in startups uh when the public markets go down as they did uh once interest rates started going up these funds wanted to naturally reduce their exposure to startups because you know startups on paper became a larger part of their portfolio than they designed their portfolio for so where we are is we see uh you know 
not the same sort of party that we saw when it came to access to growth capital uh, in 2021. Uh, having said that, and, and you know that leads to some real sort of implications in the sense that you it's it's harder for companies to get the same kinds of valuations at Series B, C, D, and so on than they did in 2020, 2021. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a greater uh, focus on sort of a path to revenue and a path to profitability once a startup is not an early stage startup anymore. So there are all of these implications. Having said that, what I'm seeing in India is that uh, the best founding teams and the best businesses still have access to capital on tap. Uh, and uh, while it may not be at you know, valuation multiples, which are 10x, 15x, 20x of revenue, uh, I think we are in a time where 5 to 10x of revenue multiples are, are considered very healthy, but the access to capital is there. And at some level, uh, the best founders know that valuation is just a number on paper. Right, I think when they need to raise capital, they need to raise capital, and if they have built a good business, they will be able to raise and go. Uh, and you know these things are cyclical, so uh, everyone's hoping that in two years we turn the bend, and uh, you know we are back to a world where there's a lot of optimism, uh, from the investor community. You know, zooming in again on the consumer side of things, things don't seem to have changed in India. You know, if you look at the volume of UPI transactions, which is a good proxy for consumer demand now in India, because most transactions happen on UPI, uh, most digital payments happen on UPI, that is up and up. So people are buying, people are spending, people are earning money, jobs are getting created, new industries are being bought. So the fundamentals haven't changed in India, at least or at least my belief is there are no signs of the fundamentals having changed. And so there's no reason for pessimism or despair. So, uh, you know, to the best founders, what I would say is if you see a problem, go out there and build. The early stage capital is available and uh, the growth stage capital will be available if you've built a high quality business. So when it comes to India, not much has changed. Abhishek, you bring up a number of really good points there. And in just the last six months, I want to echo your sentiment, right? There have been dramatic shifts in the startup environment. For investors and founders, their headlines signal choppy waters ahead. You know, VC dollars have been slowing down. Startups are raising less money now than ever before. And investors are cautious. Valuations are down. And public companies have seen their shares drop by double digits amid market volatility. You know, the current market indicates that the market correlation is underway, but some VCs still think that this is a great market to invest in. They're excited about the market reset as it represents an opportunity for mission-driven founders to really thrive. And we've seen this play out in the past as well during the 0708 financial crisis, the dot-com bust. A couple of black swan events that have really indicated that you know, while the markets are down, it might still provide a perfect platform for some fantastic entrepreneurs to build breakout businesses. You know, initially, my conclusion was that this is a temporary blip that will swiftly trend back up in a V-shaped recovery of valuations, but rather represented a new normal of how the market will price these companies somewhat permanently. Although that hasn't happened, you know, we've seen predatory pricing and VCs rolling out term sheets that look 
so, so ridiculous from a founder perspective that it de-incentivizes them to actually get out of bed and work on their companies. Now, all of this presents a very difficult challenge for the VC and tech ecosystem at large. I'd love to understand how are you looking at all of this play out? Because on one side, you have founders saying, hey, I'm trying to build a company here and I need a little bit of capital. But then you have VCs that are putting very strict metrics against my company and my sector. And it's going to be very impossible for me to raise in this market. And if I don't raise money in this market, then I'm probably not going to be able to build my company at all. And if I do want to raise money, I'm giving away large amounts of equity for very little capital, which is probably not going to help me. Now, if I do get a decent valuation, I am also giving away a lot of equity, but at the same time, I'm almost putting myself at risk if I am unable to go ahead and raise another round, especially if I don't hit some of the metrics. Now, either side of the story is kind of fair. And also at the same time, I would like to empathize with the founders because this is not an easy market for, for them to go out and raise any sort of funding. While VCs are still sitting on a lot of capital, you know, one of the surveys from PitchBook mentioned that there's $295 billion of capital that VCs have raised over the course of the last 18 months, of which $120 billion still rests just for new investments, providing an opportunity for VC funds to invest in great founders. While this has not happened, and obviously we are going through a funding winter, as some may call it, it is still an interesting time for a lot of investors to deploy capital. Just with that as the context, I would love to understand what your thoughts are and where is the state of the industry from that perspective? Yeah. You know, I'll start by saying that 2020 and 2021 were extraordinary years. They were not yeah. normal years. You know, I think uh, what happened around 2018, 2019 was probably what should feel normal. Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, it was... 2020-2021, I, I remember, you know, raises happening over, series A raises happening over two, three days. Yeah. Purely on the, uh, purely on the su sort of support of narratives or storytelling. Uh, so I remember, and we were in that time, but that doesn't feel normal. So the problem is a lot of us, uh, founders, investors, people in the ecosystem, like people who report on these kinds of things, started believing that this is normal and that's uh, that's very natural and that's very human to mm -hmm. think about you know the point of time that we are in as the status quo which is why I so where I started was it helps to zoom out yeah. take a long window view and then help to zoom in see where we are and then contrast that with what should feel normal and what should feel right it feels like where we are today or at least where we are headed very, very quickly is normal. Uh, you know, early stage investing activities back in India. Uh, we are seeing, I would say the same. I used to see deal flow as an angel back then. And now in this institutional environment, I would say the deal flow is same from a volume and quality uh, point of view as it was, say, in the beginning of 2020. So, yeah. so this feels normal to me yeah. in hindsight. 2021 did not feel normal. Also, on sort of expectations, uh, I think what we've all got to acknowledge and realize is what we have just gone through and what we are going through right now is the first for a lot of us, mm. but is not a first for the global economy. Right. Uh, you know, if you think about it, 
most Indian startups that you see today were born uh, after 2010, which means almost nobody in the Indian startup ecosystem has seen a global economic downturn or financial crisis. Uh, but being through a, going through a time like this and building a company in this time, investing in this time, instills a lot of great habits, instills mm-hmm. sort of high quality capital management and financial discipline, instills uh, governance in key talent in the ecosystem. It instills a sense of purpose and sticking to one problem over a period of time as opposed to creating a lot of mercenaries. So a lot of high quality foundations get built in Mm. the hardest of times. And we saw that globally uh, post the 2000 downturn, uh, the the dot-com bust. Uh, You know, the enduring companies today that are worth trillions of dollars were essentially created in that time. We also Mm. saw that in the 2008 global financial crisis, the companies that survived and kept building high-quality businesses are the large technology companies of today. So, So what I would like to focus on is if you zoom out, where we are today is normal. Uh, 2020 and 2021 were the party. Uh, there was a short hangover after that party. Yeah. But now we are all awake. There are no headaches left. And it's down to building business uh, with strong fundamentals. I completely agree with you. You know, building strong fundamentals ground up as a founder is something that most entrepreneurs should think about from day one rather than fixing things when the market kind of forces you to. Now, a good example there would be asking a question, for instance, like, should SaaS companies trade at a 24x enterprise value to next 12 months revenue multiple as they did in 2021? The answer is probably not. And I think 10x seems more in line with historical trend. And some may even say that that is even high. Right now, there's a lot that we can learn from public markets that can trickle down to private markets because ultimately exit of these companies is either an IPO or an acquisition, often by companies in the public sector. Right. And we've seen that historically as well. And their valuation is fixed daily by the market. This happens slowly because while public markets trade daily and prices then adjust instantly, private markets don't really reset themselves until follow on financing round happens, which can probably take anywhere between six to 24 months. Now, even in the private markets, investors can paper over valuation changes by investing at the same price, but with more structure. So it's hard to understand the headline valuation per se. But I'm somewhat confident that valuations will reset or have already started resetting. First, it began in the later stage, and we're obviously seeing that trickle down to growth and then perhaps A and ultimately to seed uh, and pre-seed rounds, especially within the Indian context. But my question really to you now is to understand whether we as investors, especially in India, have learned from any of these black swan events. Now, historically, where the West leads us on this front is the fact that it's a much more mature venture ecosystem. It's been around since the 40s and 50s, if you think about it, in some way, shape or form. Now, we still look at the VC industry as if it's 10 or 15 years young, and rightly so, it is. So for us, we haven't really had any such black swan events that the US had perhaps seen for the last 50, 60 years. 
So given that we're a smaller, younger venture ecosystem in comparison, we as investors perhaps haven't learned enough about investing in down markets such as this. So what is your perspective on what we have learned so far? And how should we think about perhaps the next five to 10 years when certain events like these might perhaps repeat themselves, or there could be another large black swan events that plagues the industry? How should investors today be looking into the future given what has happened in the past and the learnings that we've had from it? Yeah. Uh, look, there are two parts to sort of uh, my response here and how I think about this. This is an industry that uses hope and optimism as fuel. Mm. And that can never change. You know, uh, founders, early stage investors, employees in startups, people who write about the ecosystem, all operate from a worldview where they strongly believe that the world is headed in the right direction and fast and, you know, their actions are contributing in a small way to that happening. So one thing I want to make clear is that there should never be a reason for this industry to lose hope and optimism. Yeah. Uh, but hope and optimism also has cycles and, you know, uh, and these cycles play out in interesting ways, you know. I can easily imagine somebody who is an extremely buttoned-down investor who does their homework well and evaluates companies, businesses on core fundamentals, uh, you know, getting becoming a part of the momentum when everyone else around them in investing is investing in seemingly what feels like very high quality companies, founders, and businesses. So that's sort of what leads to the hope and optimism cycle. But I think uh, the big lesson that I think all of us uh, should learn from this is that uh, cycles are real. Uh, also, nothing that we experience, at least from a macroeconomic point of view, is probably a first, whether it's a boom cycle or a bust cycle. There are probably some precedents which, even if not an exact match, are similar to the time that we are going through. And there are tremendous learnings from, mm. uh, you know, the the wins and the losses in good times and bad times. So I think having that sense of perspective is helpful. There's a second lesson, which is, uh, look, if you're going to build an enduring franchise, whether it's a fund or a startup, you're building a multi-decade venture. You know, yeah. you're building something that you hope will last at least 30, 40, 50 if not years, if not longer. And so how you think about building the business needs to be insulated from things that happen every five years or 10 years and so on. And that, and if you've been through a few cycles, you will naturally bake that sort of thinking into uh, how you build your business or as an investor, how you evaluate companies. It's very important to ingrain that. And uh, the reason is because when there's a party, everyone's dancing. But, uh, you know, very few people have the perspective and the discipline to know that, hey, this is a party. And if this goes too far, we end up with a really bad hangover tomorrow morning. So, uh, you know, in times that are great and, uh, you know, it's good to be fearful. Yeah. And in times when everyone's fearful, it's 
good to dial up the optimism honestly abhishek i love that quote you know hope and optimism does fuel our industry and we've spent a good part of the first 20 odd minutes talking about the state of the venture ecosystem and now i want to move the conversation forward and talk to you a little bit more about your own personal experience and things that really led you to the dark side to become an investor per se you know venture capital is full of great firms that were founded by fantastic operators and entrepreneurs who later became investors right when we take a look at history you know gene kleiner to tom perkins to mark andreessen and ben horowitz all of these have built some fantastic venture capital firms and there's a great case to be made for operators turning venture capitalists because they really bring a lot of domain expertise operating expertise and relationships and networks that help win deals and help entrepreneurs by doing so but on the other side you also have investors who've never been operators you know mike moritz did that jim bayer did that and you have bill gurley who certainly did that and peter fenton all of these are people who have perhaps not been operators themselves but have gone on to build some fantastic vc funds and there's that evergreen question within the world of venture capital will having that operating experience really define your venture capital career or can you still be just as good as an investor just purely being an investor and not having any operating experience and there are cases to be made for both and both sides of that table have yielded fantastic results now i'm curious to hear what brought you on to the other side because you've had a fantastic career as an operator at uber hike netflix and now you're on the other side investing in early stage companies talk us through the decision making process on your end yeah you know uh, this goes way back in life for me Uh, and i'll tell you why uh, so i grew up all over the country because my uh, dad had a transferable job and uh, so i would move every 2 to 3 years from city to city and uh, more often than not these were really small what you would call uh, tier 2 or tier 3 towns today mm-hmm. right so the the uh, i think i was a naturally curious child uh, much to my parents frustration uh but the only access to information i would often have in these little towns growing up was a library and uh you know so i i i ended up becoming a voracious reader and i used to watch all of these movies on vcr tapes that they would have at these libraries and i used to consume all of this information uh got to 1999 when uh My father was posted in this town called Avadi, which is I think two two and a half hours outside of Madras, and there's like literally nothing you can do there as a teenager. Uh, that's when I got first access to the internet, and uh, and it was magical, you know, in the sense that I had I could go to any library throughout my life, but the internet had access to infinite information compared to what I could find there. and suddenly not only did i have access to all of this information on tap i was able to connect with people all over the world and that was an incredibly empowering experience for me because uh i did not feel uh like i was coming from a position of uh you know less privileged just because i was in india growing up in these small towns i suddenly felt like you know 
I could be anybody because I had access to anything and anyone at any time. When I extended that thought, and this sort of happened over the next few years, I realized that the same experience is probably going to be had by hundreds of millions of people in India over the coming decades. Mm-hmm. And so over the next few years, uh, what I became incredibly determined about is that uh, the India internet story is going to create a knowledge economy. And that's a, that's a tailwind stronger than any tailwind that we have ever seen in this country. And I needed to be a part of it. Right. Uh, so those are, those are sort of the two strongly held beliefs I formed in the early 2000s. And that's how, uh, you know, I spent sort of my early 2000s finding my way to working in this industry. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, I finally landed at Facebook in 2011. And back then, you know, you didn't have a lot of Indian startups. Uh, Flipkart was the only notable one that I remember from the time. I think Zomato was still called Foodie Bay back then. Uh, so there was no WhatsApp. So this is, uh, you know, ancient history. Although it's just like what, 12 years back, 10 years back. So uh, I made my way to Facebook and, uh, uh, you know, all of my dreams as I dreamed them were true because I was suddenly seeing, you know, the mobile internet becoming a thing. I saw the launch of 3G. I saw the launch of 4G. I saw tens of millions of people coming online and expressing themselves on Facebook, WhatsApp and Instagram. Then came sort of the second strong conviction that got built during those years, which is not only is the internet going to empower and free hundreds of millions of people in India, it's uh, also going to create homegrown startups, which are going to become really large and also eventually go global uh, because we had the talent and we had the ambition in this country. And I wanted to be a part of that. The and, you know, by nature, I'm one of those people who likes to be involved in many different things at the same time. So uh, I had this crazy idea that the only way I could be involved in multiple successful startups at the same time was to find a way to invest in them. Mm-hmm. And so that thought had already formed by, I would say, about 2013, 2014. Uh, around 2016 is when, you know, Facebook had gone for its IPO in 2012, uh, around 2016. Uh, you know, the share price was at healthy levels. And so finally, I had some capital I could start deploying. I'd also been in the industry for five years then. So I'd built some networks, a bunch of the folks I'd worked with, studied with, but now sort of either working in startups or starting their own companies. And so that was the right time for me. So I was like, okay, uh, uh, you know, this is it. I have some investable capital. I have all of these high quality people in my network who are starting things. Uh, I need to find ways to work with these founders, help them and invest in these companies. And that's that's where the journey started. So my first ever investment as an angel happened in around December 2016 in, in my gate, uh, which was founded by two of my classmates I went with. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, and then, you know, that kept happening from 2016 to 2020, 2021. And then come to 2021, I was really enjoying the investing process. I was really enjoying going on these flights of fantasy with the uh, founders that I was chatting with 
every evening and every weekend because I was doing my day job at Netflix. Yeah. And uh, I realized that, you know, maybe there's something here. I'm drawn to it so much that I think I want to do this full time. And uh, by then, by this time, I also had a reasonable track record as an angel. And I built networks among founders, operators, and VC. And so I felt like I had enough momentum to make the transition. I'd known the folks at Lightspeed since, uh, I think, 2013 or so. And, uh, uh, you know, they were the highest quality set of people doing venture capital in India. So I, I started chatting with uh, the folks at Lightspeed and, you know, eventually ended up joining them in March this year. So that is how I ended up on the dark side. That's a fascinating story about how you became a VC. I'm curious to double down on one of the points that you made in that segment there. And that was your experience of being an angel investor. Now, a lot of people today are investors themselves and have invested in a number of startups, especially during the 2020-2021 cycle, where there was so much capital available for anybody who was building a company that they were able to raise money from friends and family. Your first investment was in MyGate. And I'm sure you've had a lot of learning since 2016 to where we are today, you know, six years between then. For you to have had some sort of takeaways and perhaps even a playbook for angel investing that you now can perhaps provide those tips and advices to other people who are getting into angel investing. But I'm not interested in that because I'm more curious about what angel investing has taught you about investing in companies that you today are able to leverage as a VC at Lightspeed. Because in my opinion, angels can help you with more than just funding. They offer human capital, which can be way more valuable in the early days than money alone. And in today's industry and market where value proposition is highly in demand from a VC point of view, I'm curious to understand how you're able to leverage those experiences in the past and use them today as an investor at Lightspeed. Yeah, uh, so many things. Uh, I think I'll start by saying that it's impossible to be the perfect angel investor or the perfect venture capital investor mm-hmm. because on every investment, you will uh, you'll, you'll essentially be wrong in every investment because yeah. you will either lose money, not make back how much you hoped you would make back, or you would be in a situation where you'd be like, Man, I, I wish I'd invested more. Yeah. So even in the breakouts, you'll always end up thinking, man, I wish I'd invested more. Right. So, so it's impossible to be 100% right and perfect as an angel. And I, I think also as an institutional investor, you will always be wrong. So you have to make your peace with that. Mm-hmm. The second is, you almost have to have this schizophrenic personality where, uh, you know, and this is largely as an angel and, and it's different as an institutional investor, but largely as an angel, while you should be okay to write off the capital you've invested in a company, you also have to have the conviction that this is going to be my thousand X investment. Mm. Right? So it's almost like two different frames of mind coexisting at the same time. Right. I'm okay to write off this capital. But I strongly, strongly, strongly believe that this is going to be a thousand X investment. It's going to, this is going to change the world, right? So I think making my peace with those two 
divergent points of view constantly coexisting in my head uh, was the second learning. The third was you are actually in a position to help these founders and startups far more than you think as an angel. Mm -hmm. And there's no template of playbook. Uh, there are some templates, for example, there are some angels who are great at a specific niche. Uh, so they could be great at just PR. And, you know, for every consumer internet startup, they know exactly what PR playbook to use. And that's what they do early on. And uh, they put the startup on a path to success just by virtue of doing that. And that's mm -hmm. their alpha. Uh, some people do that for narrative and storytelling. Some people do that for product engineering. Some people do that just on the virtue of the networks they have so they can connect the founder to anybody for any need that arises, whether it's fundraising or the ad got blocked on one of the internet platforms. They know who to call. I think it's very, very important for an angel to figure out exactly what are the ways in which you are going to add value to a startup. And there doesn't need to be one. Yeah. And then really do those, really live up to those commitments and words to these founders. So if you say, hey, I can help by connecting you to all of your potential investors for the next round, like really live up to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you start doing that and you actually start influencing successful outcomes in some way early on, uh, word of mouth spreads founders talk to other founders and they uh, tell them that you know hey, if you're starting here's a person you need on your side early on because this is what they can help you with mm. uh, that is actually a learning that i think translates over to uh, institutional investing as well which is uh, what does an institution stand for uh, you know if you partner with say us at lightspeed what does that mean for a company beyond the brand. The brand has its own importance, but beyond the brand, what are the things that it means? And it's important to stand for some of those things and deliver on those things consistently. Even if it's one thing, deliver and deliver consistently. Yeah. So uh, I think those are like some of my learnings as an engine and some which translate over. I want to follow up there, Abhishek, by asking you how much of this was a conscious effort? Because as you became successful in your operating career and your network grew and you went up the ladder, I'm sure you were able to open all of those successes and opportunities for your portfolio founders. So as an angel investor, may, maybe you're giving this advice out to other angel investors, how conscious and intentional must an angel investor be today as they're thinking about becoming a more prolific angel investor and if that is a requirement for you to be a good and successful angel investor in today's market. Yeah, there's some things that I knew uh, and there's some things that I discovered. Mm. For instance, I uh, knew that I had seen the 0 to 10 journey for Facebook in India. Mm. So I had had a ringside view of, uh, you know, what the first people coming on the internet look like, what they mm. like doing, or what they want to do, how they express themselves. I also picked up uh, tons of, I, I was on the growth team at Facebook, so I picked up tons of great practices and habits around just growing a consumer product or app. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so I learned a bunch of those things. 
so those were the things I put to work when mm. uh, I started angel investing. Uh, and I hope to continue to do that. And I, I, I did as much of that as I could, you know, over the years. Yeah. There's some things that I discovered along the way. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of uh, the large global internet companies have very robust culture and uh, cultures and processes. And uh, I I saw sort of those cultures and processes get built over time and evolve over time to suit their needs. And over time, I started seeing a lot of startups face a lot of the same problems, you know. Mm. Uh, uh, and I realized that applying some of the best practices, and, and for a lot of this stuff, you need to apply first principles thinking. Yeah. But for some of this stuff, you can absolutely take the best practices involved. And so I realized that's one area in which I uh, was becoming very helpful. Uh, and, you know, as you do more of this, I started building networks, uh, you know, in the ecosystem. And giving access to those networks, to those founders is another way in which I realized I was adding value. And these were sometimes things I was realizing themselves. And sometimes, you know, it was founders telling me that, okay, this was really helpful. Thank you for doing this. And I was like, okay, that's great. Maybe I can do it for more founders then. So there's a combination of some uh, being deliberate about some things, discovering some things yourself over time, and then doubling down. And uh, discovering some things because, you know, founders were telling me that, hey, this is this was really good and helpful. Thank you. you know? yeah. and, and then there will always be things which you will not be good at. Uh, right. And it's absolutely okay to say, I'm not the person who can help you understand how to scale your cloud infrastructure as yeah. you grow from 1 million users to 50 million users. You know, find someone else. I will help you find someone through my network, yeah. but I'm not that person. So it's yeah. okay to acknowledge some of those things as well. That's a great answer. And towards the last segment of this episode, I want to spend a little bit more time about your latter years as an operator. You spend some great years at Uber, Hike, and Netflix, basically helping each of these brands find a foothold in the country. And more importantly, you are part of those growth and expansion years for a number of these brands as they were trying to figure out the perfect recipe for success. Now on the other side, as you spend more time as an investor working with some of your portfolio companies who are thinking about expanding into newer markets, say Europe, North America, Southeast Asia, there's a lot of your own personal experiences that you can bring to the table and share with them. Now, I'm sure there are a lot of founders out there who are listening to this episode who are keen to understand what you have learned from helping a number of these global brands expand into India and really understand the nuances both culturally as well as from a business point of view. And can you share a couple of those learnings with us, especially today as more companies and brands are thinking about building from India for the globe and are thinking about global GTM from day one? Yeah, uh, there are actually a few learnings which are consistent across uh, all of these experiences. And, you know, early on, I used to think of McDonald's as a very uh, successful reference. You mm-hmm. know? And the reason is you can walk into a McDonald's anywhere in the world yeah. and there will be things that are consistent, but yeah. there will be things that are localized and successful. You will find a Mekalu Tiki in yeah. India, for example. And, and uh, you know, when I travel outside of India, I try to go to at least one McDonald's outlet and in every country, I've found some menu items 
which are uniquely designed for that country. And yet you know that, okay, this is a McDonald's product mm. and there's a McDonald's experience. So, so that, that became a reference in my mind very early on. Uh, so I would think about how, what is core uh, to like a Facebook or an Uber or a Netflix and what needs to reflect the context of the country you're operating in. And having an exceptionally clear sense of those two things, I think makes the journey much easier. Right? Mm. So to give you an example, uh, at Facebook, what is core is the ability to, or back then was core, was the ability to share photographs, send friend requests, send messages, and those things don't change. The brand of the company, the blue and white, those things don't change. But then, way back then, when you signed up to Facebook, uh, you know, on the registration page, it said first name, last name. In India, people don't call it the last name. People call it surname. Right. And for their date of birth, they don't use MMDDYY. They use DDMMYY. So that mm -hmm. became an example of the Mekalu Tiki. Right. So, so understanding what needs to be localized and what score and needs to be kept is, and having clarity around that in the early team is very important. The second is you need champions of localization. You need people who are identifying, you know, the, uh, what needs to be changed from last name to surname, mm. what new features, uh, you know, don't challenge the core, but are important for growth in that. You need those champions on the ground with their nose to the ground all the time. And you need this tension between these central teams that are preserving the core and these champions on the ground that are challenging the core and saying, no, that's not a part of the core. That needs to be localized. That is a healthy tension to have. Mm. Uh, and if you're able to establish that healthy tension, you'll build a very strong global but well-localized product. Right? Uh, and then this could translate into... Questions like, do you need a local product team or not? Is it core or is it important for localization? So, you know, this translates into a lot of those downstream uh, implications. And then finally, I think there's a tremendous amount of value in just listening, uh, not just to users, that's obvious, but also listening to partners, right? We spent a lot of time talking to telcos who had who operated large businesses in the country consumer businesses and early startups and understanding their learnings and uh, you know not everything may apply but there's a tremendous amount of value in just listening to people who have built successful large businesses being in that country those are some interesting perspectives and continuing the conversation around building global startups from day one and perhaps localizing them as and when required in certain markets and geographies I'm curious to understand if there's this recipe for success. Why, quite candidly, I think I know what the answer here is. But there's a part of me that also believes that not to be true. You know, I'm extremely confident that across your three experiences working with global brands, and while they operated in different sectors and had completely different business models, there were underlying fundamentals and principles that are almost transferable. And I'm asking this question again on behalf of a number of founders who are thinking about building companies from India for the globe from day one, not just in enterprise SaaS, because we've seen 
good examples coming out of India, building for the world, and they've done a fantastic job and have had great successes in doing that. But there are other sectors that are now looking at SaaS and saying, hey, we can perhaps do this too. An example there is D2C. While we haven't really had a breakout winner in this category, there are a number of founders who I've spoken to personally who are wanting to capitalize on this opportunity simply because either they have a far superior product that they know can really dominate in a market that can give them a huge market share or we have founders who have lived in a different country and geography and are now returning back to India to build the company because of a number of obvious factors all the way from quote-unquote cheap labor for manufacturing all the way up until great talent that's available in the country. So what are your thoughts around this? And what can perhaps, say, D2C founders learn from what SaaS founders have done incredibly well in terms of building and selling to businesses globally? I think it's just so context-specific, right? Uh, it's, it's, It's very hard to think of, like, one good answer that applies across different kinds of uh, companies and products. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can actually think of pretty much almost every product or company eventually having the potential to go global. Yeah, It's just that the complexity involved and the timelines involved and the capital requirements will vary. Mm. Right? So... So it's almost like, and maybe this comes down to me just being, uh, uh, you know, irrationally optimistic, but I can sort of see a path to almost every business or product going global in some form or fashion. Mm. Uh, but yes, that path is different. And some paths will take more time, capital, patience, hard work than some others, right? right. So that I think having a sense for how difficult is your path early on is is critical. Like I, I, I suspect building a quick commerce company in India versus building it in Germany probably look very different. Mm. But there are probably a lot of similarities around driving for operational efficiency through technology uh, and a culture of like sort of customer centricity and supplier centricity. Like those things are central. But then operationally those businesses may look very very different so so yeah uh, put me in the camp of someone who believes that every company can be global every product can be global maybe not every product but at least every company can be global it's just that their paths may be uh, may vary on complexity and simplicity i love that we've been talking about expanding markets and helping founders think about building for the globe from day one But one of the things that we've not addressed so far, and I'd like to bring that into context here, is having feet on street. One of the things that we did incredibly well at Scrum Ventures was helping founders think about what their Japan go-to-market strategy would be and finding people who can help them navigate the nuances of the Japanese market. A big factor to be considered is having the right personnel. And when companies do not take the strategic approach to the decision of whether and when to outsource and have talent on the street is really when companies begin to fail because they're unable to build the capabilities required. And when this happens, 
either they lose a lot of money or they're unable to tap into the right resources and often they end up losing to competition who are able to then have feet on street themselves. So that brings me to an interesting point, which is when should founders really start thinking about hiring people in different geographies who understand markets really, really well and are able to leverage their own relationships in those markets, which can drive business for the company? And how important is it for founders to start thinking about it from day one as they think about the global strategy as well? Yeah, I think there's always value uh, to having feet on the ground. Uh, mm-hmm. Eventually, it may not be when you get started. But yeah. as you scale, you will sort of start running into different kinds of hurdles, which uh, to solve, you will need to have feet on the ground. But what are the early signs of that? You know? Perhaps based on, I mean, I'm sure Facebook took a long time, Netflix took a long time to really have feet on the ground. Um, and some of your learnings with respect to perhaps even within within the India context itself, Netflix in urban cities versus Netflix in, say, uh, small towns. And, you know, when you're trying to yeah. penetrate different markets, is also a different conversation altogether and having feet on those in those markets. So, yeah, maybe some of those learnings so let me give you correlate a, to this. Yeah, let me give you a real example uh, with Netflix. Right. Netflix operates in over 190 countries, but it doesn't have teams in all of those 190 countries. Mm-hmm. It has teams in the countries where it sort of sees the eventual largeness of outcome. Uh, and that's where, you know, uh, it has teams. And the reason it has teams is as soon as Netflix launched and became a global service uh, at one of the CESs where we basically came to the keynote and said, hey, starting today, we are available in 190 countries. Very soon after that, we started realizing that uh, content preferences tend to be very local, right? So people in India want to watch Bollywood films. Yeah. And if and, and they want to watch series in Indian languages. Now, to do that, you could have people sitting in the US and licensing content. But to do that really well, you need to build these deep networks with the industry here. Uh, you need to figure out what stories resonate with people here. Mm. You On the distribution side, you need to figure out what are the ways in which people are consuming content today and be available in those ways, which is why Netflix did partnerships with the likes of Geo, Airtel, Data Sky, and so on. Right, so uh it's it's always possible to sit in one country and then launch a business in another country but you will start facing hurdles eventually as you scale and to solve a lot of those hurdles you need a local presence uh either sort of doing the legwork and removing these hurdles or funneling back insights uh around you know what does this country really need and then building for that that also makes me think to a certain extent about how we think about building products for urban India as well as perhaps rural India. And oftentimes what ends up happening is we think of both of these customer bases as two different audiences. And we think about building products differently. But fundamentally, urban India is not that different from rural India. You know, small towns have a big heart. And they play a big role in our modern lives. They're aspirational. They want to live, think, breathe like urban India. So 
while companies are also thinking about what their strategy needs to be for different geographies not just internationally but also domestically it's important to keep in mind different icps and at the same time know that these icps sometimes can overlap with one another and that to me is what some of the best brands have figured out and do a great job at and i'm not sure if what i'm saying resonates with you does that make any sense to you by any chance yeah you know you raise a very interesting point it's it's like if you think about the analogy of india does a delhi or a bangalore or a bombay or a chennai or kolkata by themselves represent what india is no they don't but there lies a very interesting choice for companies you know how much do you peel the onion and yeah. how far do you go when it comes to deploying resources to localize and i think that becomes a a capital allocation problem you know yeah. you could go really far you know netflix could have teams in every state figuring out local content for that state and that dialect and language and you know so on or it could say look what are the smart ways to do this which are highest leverage mm. you know uh, and so i think that becomes those become important strategic questions to ask along the journey yeah uh, it's not binary where you either go whole hog or you just don't do it you know it's that sort of the journey which which uh, which requires daily problem solving i know unfortunately we have a hard stop and we are almost approaching the end of this episode but you know we were really getting deeper into what it means to expand businesses into different parts of the world and what is the playbook to do that very successfully i would love to bring you on to the podcast at a later stage and we can perhaps do a masterclass on this and go deeper into couple of use cases and really talk about how successful businesses have really done it from various sectors but before i let you go i'd love to understand how you view this next chapter of your career you've obviously built a great brand for yourself as an operator and you've done a pretty decent job in helping some of your portfolio companies as an angel investor but this next leg of your career is a very interesting one so how do you think about leveraging the abhishek nag brand that you've already built and incrementally adding more things that can make you as a venture capitalist really stand out and i'm extremely confident that lightspeed is going to elevate your brand to a next level and factoring all the things combined here how do you envision the next 5 to 10 years of your career as an investor yeah thankfully at lightspeed i'm supported by uh, okay. you know all of my peers on the investing team the, the wealth of their experience the platform team uh, which has amazing capabilities across recruiting marketing corporate development pr and you know so on uh so at lightspeed it uh, uh you know it's it's the machine that comes to work for all of the founders that we partner with uh personally the way i like to think of myself is as i i i, like, I think of myself as the co-founder at large for the companies that i'm involved with mm. right and the co-founder at large means i don't sit at their offices i don't show up to work every day but i feel as responsible for the eventual outcome in these companies as a co-founder would feel and uh, that creates a sense of accountability to uh, these founders that i try to live up to uh, on the angel journey it's different because you're largely helping these companies in their first few years after that institutions like lightspeed come into the mix 
and they obviously have all of the resources and the machinery to then help these founders and companies on the journey forward. But you always like to stay involved. Uh, so so it, that's sort of what the angel journey looks like. On the institutional side, you're, you're sort of involved with these companies for a much longer period of time. And the problems early on to the problems in a sort of pre-IPO company that you're solving tend to be different. So there's constant co-learning with, uh, in partnership with the founders. And it's a journey that I've just started. So hit me up in a few years and I'll tell you how it's going. <laughs> Abhishek, that was a fantastic episode. And you've been nothing but generous in terms of sharing all of your insights from your operating experience and being candid about some of the learnings that you've had with angel investing as well as now a little bit on the other side with Lightspeed. And I'd love to bring you on sometime in the future and delve deeper into a number of different aspects, including market expansion and building companies across various geographies. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure and I'm incredibly grateful for your team for making this happen. Well, if you're like me and you enjoyed this episode and all the other ones that we've been bringing you so far, please go ahead and rate and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. This really helps others discover the show, but more importantly, also keeps you updated about all of our future releases. We're only about five episodes away from the centennial episode, so please make sure you tune back in again next week to see who we have here in store for you and who the 100th episode is going to be. Until then, stay safe everybody and continue to keep hustling.